So yesterday I had the privilege of being in Texarkana, Texas slash Arkansas. Wasn't ever really sure what state I was in, where I was uh, the officiant of my niece's wedding. And of course, wedding like all weddings, we love because it's the celebration of, of two young people or two older people who are bearing witness of their love for each other and saying these great things. And it's this great picture of devotion and covenant and connection. But for me, it was especially uh, touching and special because of my niece. Tyler, when she was younger, was a holy terror of a child. And so it's so fun to get to do her wedding now because to see her become this young lady who loves Jesus. I still remember the very first time our little niece, Tyler, came over. She was the first really babysitting job maybe Allison and I had as a young married couple. She was three at the time. She came into our house and immediately went to a curtain, tore the curtain. Immediately, we lost her somewhere and she opened a bottle of glue that she thought was lotion and it was all over her hands and all over her face. And then later, the next day, I walk into our guest room and we had an exercise yoga ball and it is flat on the floor. It's no longer a ball, it is just a circle. And I'm like, well, maybe she figured out how to deflate it. I pump it up and once I pump it up, I hear all these little and I see and notice tiny little thumbtack holes all over the yoga ball. She had killed our yoga ball. I'm still kind of upset about that. She was just this terror of a child. She one time at Thanksgiving spent a morning just destroying the family Thanksgiving that ended, I won't tell you the whole story, but it ended with her calling 911 in the bathroom. (laughs) But yesterday I got to see her and her new husband, Corbin, get to say to each other out of 8 billion people on earth, I'm choosing you. Because in you I find friendship and connection and For this young couple, they find Christ in each other. And that's what gives a wedding such beauty. So for the past nine weeks, we've been going through this series that we've called Words of Life. And it's been centered on this idea of where we began in John chapter six. The idea of where Jesus is getting to the point. And Jesus has just experienced this what could have been heartbreaking, I'm not sure we get a lot of insight into how he felt about this, but in John 6, thousands of disciples desert him. They desert him, they leave, they walk away, and he sees this happen and he turns to his disciples. And here's what he says. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, are you going to leave also? But Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like a young couple on their wedding day who are devoting themselves to each other, not knowing what the future holds, not knowing what marriage will have. That's what I got to see yesterday. I love that marriages begin with such joy and then we have to fight to keep that joy because it makes us better people. In much similar vein, here the disciples are probably wondering, are we gonna stick this out? And Peter turns to Jesus 
not knowing the future, not knowing what's in front of him, not knowing the ups and downs, especially not knowing how much pain was probably going to come his way and how difficult the road was going to be. But he makes this declaration that we have tried to make the last nine weeks. Where else are we going to go? Out of everything on earth, what are we going to try to accept? What are we going to try to follow? What are we going to believe and shape our lives around? Peter says, it's you, Jesus. Where else would I go? That's the heart. Church family, may that be the heart and desire, our devotion. May that be our anthem as a church family. To say we have nowhere else to go but to you, Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Our final word of all the nine we find, you've probably already guessed, is witness. It's found at the very end of your New Testament, found in the book of Revelation. So I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. Our young people will know that as apocalyptic literature. Where's my young, young people? But I've been teaching them that on Wednesday nights. That's right, guys. Apocalyptic literature. It's everyone's favorite and least confusing New Testament book, amen? Right. But we're going to turn there as we explore how this book, unlike any other, calls us to witness to the saving power and blood of the sacrificed lamb. Now, before we dig into that, we probably need to do this. As you guys are turning to Revelation, we're going to be there in chapter 1. And we're going to run through some things here in a moment. But before we get there, because of the confusing nature of this book, because of the way that a lot of our culture, especially with dispensationalism and rapture theology, have captured our imagination, we need to be reminded of what this book is really about. We want to be faithful to this book. And because it is such a confusing book, we're going to do a quick revelation rundown. So buckle up. And if this is confusing to you today, please grab me afterward. Please ask the question, what can I do to understand this book a little bit more? And I will point you in a few directions. So here's our revelation rundown. Number one, here's what you need to remember about revelation. Revelation is a perception of how to live the Christian life, not prediction about future events. How do we know that? Well, Revelation 1-3 starts just like this. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's actually a side note to the original reader of the text. 90% of the ancient world was illiterate. This is a side note. And it, yes, it applies to us. But it was really a note to the original reader who delivered this letter to the seven churches of Asia. And then it says, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is not, he doesn't say going to take place in 2023. He says the time is near. So here's what we need to understand. Revelation is perception, not prediction. The meaning of revelation is only clear and it's only faithful If our interpretation of it matches John's original intent to his original audience. And John is writing to and had perfect clarity to those who first heard the letter, the seven churches of Asia. And he's telling them, you will be blessed. Therefore, if we have an interpretation of revelation that only is about future events, we are breaking a cardinal rule of biblical interpretation. 
And that means if the a revelation only is relevant to our generation, then it couldn't have been relevant to previous generations. So it is not prediction. It is perception of past, present, and future generations of how to be faithful witnesses to Jesus the King and Messiah. It is about being and perceiving our world so that we can live like the Lamb in a world that is saturated with idolatry and empire. It's not prediction of unfolding future events only for this generation. It's a message for all generations about faithfulness in a world that rejects God. Number two, revelation is scripture to strengthen our witnessing, not speculation for wondering. When read correctly, Revelation is a transformative book. It's a radical transforming book for the disciples. It calls out lukewarm faith and apathetic Christianity. Revelation should inspire us to be an alternative people in the midst of a world of rampant greed and idolatry and injustice. What we do when we speculate about it is we cheapen the book. We cheapen its message, wondering about current and possible future events, who's this and who's that. And instead of giving it its life-giving power, we drain it of all its power. When read the way it was originally written, this book will challenge us and transform us to be faithful under the care of Jesus. And finally, revelation just means revealing. It is a revealing, not a play-by-play on a so-called rapture. Now, many have said this, and it is true. A text, and when I say text, I mean scripture. A text without a context is only a pretext for a proof text. What I mean is, when we remove original meaning from the text, we end up in a place of providing for the text meanings that it never intended. We put our own emphasis into the text. This may upset a few of you, but the rapture, as we know it, is popularized by the late great planet Earth in the 70s and 80s and then popularized again in the 90s by Tim LaHaye and Jeff Jenkins' books, The Left Behind series, which there's even kids' versions of, is not a biblical position. The rapture is not in the Bible. And I can show you if you don't believe me. All rapture language that we get from Revelation and Matthew 24 has been misconstrued in order to bring our current projections onto the text instead of original meaning from the text. And so we need to realize that this is a revealing, not a play-by-play on what's going to happen. Here's what's happening in Revelation. The most common language in this book is the Lamb of God. The most common image given in Revelation, 28 times, seven times four, seven meaning perfect, four meaning universal. Seven times four, 28 times, Revelation gives a picture of a lamb that looks as if it has been slain. Giving the reader an image over and over and over about 
a book about a lamb, about a king who rules and reigns not through shedding of others' bloods, but by shedding his own. So in short, I know that's a lot, but we needed to do this rundown. Revelation is this. If you want a definition of how to understand this book, Revelation is a call to all Christians, past, present, and future that read this book, to be allegiant witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, as we encounter the powers of the enemy, the powers of empire, and all oppositions to the sacrificial way of the Lamb. And so the question driving this book as we get into it and we start to understand this word of life witness that we're talking about this morning, the question that John is trying to answer for these seven churches in Asia that Jesus writes to specifically in chapters two and three is he's asking or answering this question, how does someone live like Jesus in a world that is anti-God devoted to selfishness, consistently opposed to the way of sacrifice, in a world full of ego and betrayal, division, power, and wealthy ambition. How do we live that way? It's a great question, right? Maybe you feel yourself going, yeah, I'd like to know, how do we live in a world that is full of all the things that we feel as well? It's a great question then, and it's a great question now. And John's answer, John the Revelator, his answer is you be a witness, a martus. Now, if you picked up on the video, a martus, a witness is someone who has a message, right? It's someone who isn't just telling a story about themselves, but it's someone who has a proclamation about what has happened to them. I was this, then this happened, now I'm going to tell you about that. That is what a witness is. Witnessing is not just let me tell you about me, it's let me tell you about what has happened and now I am different, what I have experienced. And for the Christian, our witness is we have once lived this way, we have now seen the resurrected lamb and now we live a completely different. That's the story. That's the message. That's the how of Revelation. How do we get along? How do we live in a world? The heart of Revelation is Jesus, a call to the original seven churches to not forsake their first love, to not be fearful of the world and the future, to steer clear of idolatry, to stay true to the message of the good news, to reject lukewarm faith, so that they can be witnesses. And repeated over and over is not just an image of a lamb, but if you read chapters two and three, repeated over and over in essence is a message that sounds like this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who Nikes, that's where Nike gets their word, the Greek word for victory, the shoes on your feet, the one who Nikes, the one who is victorious, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Revelation is a call to bear witness to the goodness, to the love and power of Jesus, to display lamb power. And what John is going to encourage us to do today, 
as we'll see in the text, first of all, is he gonna say, if you're gonna be a witness, what do witnesses do? Witnesses worship. There's nine songs in the book of Revelation. Nine of them. They're songs that go from praise and adoration, songs of victory, of look what God can do, look what the lamb could do. And there's songs also of pleading for justice. How long, O oh Lord, will this go on? It's songs that come from heaven and there's songs that come from earth. But it's clear in those nine songs that the point is witnesses of Jesus can't help but worship. Now, before you dismiss this as just another church point, before you go, yeah, yeah, Jake, we know we're supposed to show up for church, we're here, you're preaching to the choir, we need to understand what kind of worship Revelation is talking about. What kind of worship John, through the Spirit, is encouraging these early witnesses to live out. Worship in Revelation, just as it is in the rest of your New Testament, is never pigeonholed to Sunday mornings. Christian worship, of course, we know this, I hope we do, is not three songs and a prayer. It never has been, it never should be. Worship, of course, includes our voice, but in a much broader and greater way, we witness by how we worship every day. Loving God is worship, but so is loving your neighbor. Lifting your voice in praise is worship, but so is the way you treat that coworker and your enemy. Worship is daily sacrifice. It's Romans 12. And Romans 12 lived out is seen in the call of the book of Revelation, of us overcoming because we live by the way of the Lamb, like we just read in Revelation 2.11. It's daily sacrifice. It's being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Martin Luther King Jr. in his early time as a preacher in Montgomery, Alabama had already faced a lot of difficulty. And he came up with this phrase from his study of the book of Romans and also from Revelation that the Christian call is to be a person who is a transformed nonconformist. It's a good phrase there, right? A transformed nonconformist. Meaning, I've been changed, but I'm not going to just stay like the world. I'm transformed, and I'm not going to conform to the world. And in one of his sermons early on in his work, as he wrote this, he said, honesty impels me to admit that transformed nonconformity which is always costly and never comfortable, may mean walking through the valley of the shadow of suffering. It may mean losing my job. It may mean having to have a six-year-old daughter ask me, Daddy, why do you go to jail so much? See, Martin Luther King understood that by being a witness, his worship went beyond the walls of a church building. He worshiped in song and in service, in language out of his mouth, but in life, in his actions. Witnesses, worship. And that witness and that worship always has two layers, two sides. It has depth. It's devotion, but it's also pro public proclamation. I wonder, this is the question that kept coming to my mind this week. Have my neighbors seen me worship?
They know I go to church. They know I work for a church. They saw me this morning get up and get my truck and I was dressed up. Some of them were out in the yard. They know I go to worship, but have they seen me worship? And I'm not talking about the Perkinses are holding a song service on their front lawn every Sunday night, right? People might come here, Allison, but they wouldn't come here, the boys. And I'm one of the boys. But have they seen us worship in the way we are kind, in the way that we love, in the way that we go beyond the selfish nature of our culture to connect? Have your kids, parents, have your kids seen you worship lately? In the way you treat them, in the way you admit and repent of your shortcomings, in the way that you lead them to Jesus. Husbands and wives, have your spouse seen you worship? If you need a worship song, I wanna suggest two worship songs for you this morning. You're like, yeah, tell me some new worship. Grave, you know, I was singing Graves into Garden last night, driving home at one in the morning, so loud to keep myself awake. I was like, Graves in, yeah, anyway, I won't tell you about that. I was by myself in my truck. I drove through Wheeler. I was honking at the, at the hard castles, trying to wake them up. I was just having a good time all by myself, just so I would not die. But uh, seven hours across Texas is a long ways, but I wanna suggest a couple worship songs for how we worship. I believe that we could worship if we learn a song of resistance. When's the last time you sang the song of resisting the urge of selfishness? Sang the song that resists the draw to consumerism? Have we sang the song that resists magnetism that is so prevalent in our culture to demonize those you disagree with? There is demonization happening in here this morning. You don't agree with somebody, so they are burning in hell in your mind. What about the pull of individualism? What about a song that says, you know what? My church family needs me and I need my church family. That's a song of resistance. And the second song I would suggest is a song of service, of daily living it out. A song that says, whatever it takes, like Shane said, for people to know Jesus, whatever it takes for people to know what he's done in my life, I will witness to it. I have the aroma of Jesus on me from being around Jesus' people. And so let's sing the song of resistance, the song of service, witnesses, worship. And second, we're gonna get into some text. We're gonna see that witnesses are allegiant. That's a strange word to us. But over and over, Revelation is talks about the faithfulness of God's people overcome seven times in chapters two and three. Those who overcome, those who are faithful. A great story about this, as many of you may know, of 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself became a martyr. Bonhoeffer was a prominent leader in the German church and moved over to New York City from Germany in the 30s. He was working on a PhD and he started to witness the rise of Hitler in his home country. In 1939, Bonhoeffer began to feel very conflicted about his position of safety. 
while he was here in our country, at the same time while seeing his countrymen suffer and seeing so many people of the gospel fall away from faith or even begin to support such abhorrent evil. He labored with what to do. He labored with what it meant to be a witness. And one day it started to become clear. He wrote in his journal one day in New York, I do not understand why I'm, un- I'm here. It is almost unbearable. He was laboring with this decision of what to do in the U.S. He, he had received several offers, meaningful work and service where he could have stayed and worked for churches. Some of them were motivated to protect him from going to Nazi Germany. But over a couple months, as these things came in, he kept saying no to all of them. And it was on June 20th, 1939, he made a decision. He decided to return to Germany. He wrote to a friend, another fellow theologian who's pretty famous. He said, I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history, not away from the German people, but with them. I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after this war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people during the war. And so he moved back. He got on a boat and went to Europe. He arrived in Germany where the authorities got wind of his arrival and quickly turned against him. He was arrested. He was held in prison for too long where he wrote one of the best 20th century uh, books on Christianity called The Cost of Discipleship. And then after several years in prison at the Nazis' hands, he was hung for his belief in Jesus. But his witness, some would say, was part of the reason that Hitler was conquered. Bonhoeffer shows us that witnesses are allegiant. I want you to hear this call in three verses out of this book. It says in Revelation 13, 10, this calls for patient, and endure, patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Revelation 14, 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of, God, of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And one more, Revelation 17, 14, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph, uh, triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The most common image in the book of Revelation is a lamb who is slain, and by the way, does not conquer with power. He conquers with a sword that is a word of his, that comes out of his mouth. It's not a literal sword, and he conquers by his blood. But the other image that comes out is those who follow him. The most common virtue used to describe his followers is that they are faithful. And another way to interpret that word is they are allegiant. The lamb conquers not by war, but by the cross. And his followers take the shape of the lamb And they remain faithful, not just in word or in thought to the Lamb, but by in action, by attaining victory, by living like the Lamb. That's the story of Revelation. It's witnesses who worship in word and in deed, and it is witnesses who remain allegiant to him. 
I want to close with one more little passage because it gets very clear in Revelation chapter 12 in the middle of the book and then a challenge for all of us. I hope this hasn't been confusing to you. If it has, please come and talk to me. I would suggest that you pick up a book by Scott McKnight called Revelation for the Rest of Us, one of the best uh, scholarly books out there. And then there's one by Michael Gorman called um, Reading Revelation Responsibly. And it is excellent. Uh, Both of those are excellent if you're confused about this book. But if you're not a reader and want the 30-minute version, I'll take you to lunch and we'll do it, okay? Um, But I want you to hear this finally. Because I want you to see what Revelation 12 says about witnesses. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, this is talking about the dragon who is the devil in in this imagery of the book, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then it says how he's hurled down. It says how we win victory. It says they, meaning the witnesses, the Christians, the followers, the disciples, they triumph over the devil, over Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, the dragon, whatever you want to call him, all his little names or his little titles. They triumph over him by two things. They got the blood of the lamb on them and they have word of their testimony. They triumph over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they were such worshipers and they were so allegiant to Jesus that they would die for him. But in dying for him, they would conquer the enemy or they would more accurately join Jesus in conquering the enemy so here's my challenge let us be witnesses to the lamb church family you have a story you have a message you have good news to share with people around you you have a testimony something has happened to you that you now bear witness to You have come into contact, and when you were baptized, you have come into contact with the blood of the lamb. And when you live that out and come into contact with it over and over and over, you have a story to share. What a challenge for us. You might be sitting there this morning saying, I don't have anything to share. I'm not that good of a Christian. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know anything about the Bible. It doesn't say they conquered the enemy with knowledge. It doesn't say they conquered the enemy because they went to church every Sunday. Not that I'm against that. Please be here. <laughs> it says they conquer the enemy because they act like the lamb. Why do they have the blood of the lamb on them? Because they're close to the lamb. When you're close to the lamb, you're going to get his blood on him, on you, right? And because they were close to the lamb, now they have something to share because they've given up their own way. Their life looks like worship. They are allegiant to the lamb and the lamb alone. When you give your allegiance to the lamb, I got news for you, there's really nowhere else for you to give it. And that gives you a story.
You may also be saying this morning, well, I don't really, I've grown up in church. I don't really have, I wasn't a crack addict. I don't have a story to share. Yes, you do. You grew up in church. Your parents brought you to know Jesus. That is a story. Amen? You may be saying, no, I don't have a story. I'm the worst of all sinners. Not in the eyes of Jesus, you're not. Not when you're close to the blood of the lamb. You have a story. Church family, our world needs some good news. Amen? You're not going to get it from Washington, D.C. I don't care what you're thinking. In two years, we'll fix everything. No, you won't. Stop that. Give your allegiance to the Lamb. Stop giving your allegiance to donkeys and elephants. I got another third party. It's the party of Jesus. And he will show you a better way. And when he shows you a better way, you can show the world. Not just a better way, the best way. May that be true. We've got a story to tell. Church family, I'm gonna close with this. I'll shut up. You guys are like, oh, I, went, I was up talking to myself at 1 a.m. You guys know this is gonna get a little weird, all right? Our cities, our little towns here in Texas, and I'm not judging anybody. I'm compassionate for the people. I'm compassionate for our people who say they believe in God but show nothing for it. I'd say, I bet 95% of Canadian, Miami, Perryton, Wheeler all say they believe in Jesus. Why then do we only have 20% church attendance? It's because we've lost our allegiance. Let's not judge that. Let's not throw stones at that. Let's go show them that church is the best way, the best news possible. Let's go show them a better story not of church people who sit in walls and throw stones at the world and say, world's going to hell in a handbasket. Guess what? It always has been, right? Until Jesus came along. And so let's tell people that Jesus has come along and let's live it out. May that be our anthem. Let's witness to how good he is. If you need anything this morning, I know we're late. It wasn't my fault we started late. Let's stand together and let's sing. <laughs>